In the book of Matthew, in verse 20, chapter 23, verse 29, the Holy Scriptures read, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape from being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send to you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all of the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered you, your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered to them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be here one stone left upon another that will not be thrown down. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin today? Father, we come before you to look to your word, not man's word, not man's opinion, not man's thoughts but your perfectly revealed and inspired word, which does not change. And so, Father, we just ask that you would help us now to see the truth in this text. Help us not to shy back from it. Help us to examine ourselves in light of the text and not use it as a magnifying glass to examine others. So we ask that you would convict us, myself included, where we fall short of your glorious standard. Help us to see the ways where we have engaged in rebellion against you. Even as your children, we can do that. And so we ask, Lord, that you would, through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would rebuke us, that you would stir our hearts to repentance. And Father, we ask that we would walk by faith and not by sight. Help us to trust you in what you've revealed in your word, to not make excuses for it, to not justify, like the Pharisees and the scribes do in this text, their unrighteous behavior, but help us to examine ourselves so that we might walk in Christ's likeness for the glory of your precious name and for the good of your people and the mission here that you've given us to go into all the world and preach the gospel, to make disciples and build up disciples. We ask that you would help us to do that now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. What would it take for normal, everyday, run-of-the-mill, nice, law-abiding citizens to rebel against society's institutions? What would it take? What would it take for anarchy to break out among every normal-day people? Well, evidently, all it takes 
is three lightning strikes. For exactly at 8.28 p.m. on July 13th, 1977, with a one in a million chance, three lightning bolts struck and severed three power lines that connected to two nuclear power plants in Westchester, New York. Nearby in New York City, the lights flickered, televisions began to sputter and go out as air conditioners rattled to a stop. But then at 9.30 p.m., the massive power generator in Ravenswood, Queens, shut itself down automatically in order to try to protect itself from damage, which then resulted in the once very bright New York City skyline going completely dark. For a few minutes, the people of the city, they reveled in the sudden and fascinating complete disappearance of the 20th century in all technology. It was just poof, gone. And so they stood there without a streetlight in sight, And one commentator said, it sure is going to be a beautiful night. And boy, could they have not been any more wrong. For in the hot pitch black night, with people trapped in lifeless subway cars, stuck in motionless elevators, in silent nightclubs, with darkness surrounding the entire once enlightened city, the many people there began to act in not so enlightened ways. For soon... There were fire-lit garbage cans being rolled into the streets, setting buildings on fire. And as the flames set the city ablaze, the soon-to-be criminals realized something suddenly, which was this. All of those items in the store windows that they wanted were suddenly free for the taking, regardless of the fact that they could not afford them. And so the looting then ensued. As drugstore windows were smashed, With TVs and expensive clothing being taken, two cops pulled up, stepped out of their squad car with the lights glowing and flashing, only to see the total anarchy taking place from the growing mob. And in response, they knew this was not a fight they wanted to take. They wanted to get out of there. The crowds laughed then, realizing that they were free to do whatever they wanted. And so they began to harass the police themselves, who were only attempting to enforce the laws of the land that they had sworn to protect. When the light of morning finally came, it revealed a city that looked like a smoking war zone than the city that they had seen the day before, which served to show that the city that has been nicknamed the greatest city in the world was not so great after all. For when the opportunity arose, the great people of this great city went on to create and do great evil and violence. And not because of the darkness that the blackout occurred, but because of the darkness that lies within every human heart, which will, every time, given the right opportunity, manifest itself with rebellion, anarchy, and violence. In Matthew chapter 23, we find the greatest opportunity of them all that reveals this rebellious, hateful attitude that lies within the human heart. And what is that opportunity that we see the religious leaders encountering and having? It's an encounter with God himself. For the truth is, when the unregenerate human heart encounters God, it will, every single time, lead to a spiritual blackout that results in anarchy and rebellion. In Matthew 23, then, we find Jesus' warning of exactly that 
And in this chapter, we find that the religious leaders, they had encountered God, but they had encountered him in three specific ways. All right? And in each of these ways, each of these encounters with God, though they were different, they resulted in the same exact thing, which was anarchy and rebellion. And this serves to show, as we said a moment ago, the darkness that is within the human heart. And so looking to our passage this morning, we're going to find here the three encounters, the three ways that enemies of the kingdom reveal the darkness within their hearts, and here they are. The enemies of the kingdom reveal the darkness in their hearts by opposing God's mandates, first off, secondly, God's messengers, and third, God's message. In this chapter, Jesus has called the religious leaders a lot of not-so-nice names, right? And the chief criticism that he levies upon them is the term hypocrite. What is that? It's a fake person. It's a play actor. It's somebody who's putting on a mask to hide their true identity and to simply play a part. And in a lot of ways, these religious leaders, these scribes, these Pharisees of Jesus's day were extremely good at playing this part. They had basically everyone duped, but there's one person they didn't have duped. And who was that? God. And this was manifested, especially with the son of God who came along and called them out for their blatant hypocrisy. As we've seen throughout our study of Matthew's gospel, especially in Matthew chapter 23, which we've been in, this is our fifth sermon in this chapter alone because of how important the truths are of this passage. But we've seen that these people were hypocrites in some serious ways. One of the biggest ways is that they pretended to be obeying God. They put on the mask of religious obedience and observance and piety and tried to look good. But the reality was they were flat out disobeying God. They were rebelling against him. Think about this. How did they do this? Well, for example, as we saw early on in the chapter, they made up an entirely ridiculous promise-keeping system of double promises, pinky promises, swear on a stack of Bibles promises. I mean, it wasn't literally that, but you get the idea. That's exactly what it was. Did you make an oath upon the temple? Oh, no big deal. You don't have to hold that one. You can break that if it's inconvenient. Not a problem at all so long as you didn't make an oath upon the gold of the temple, because that's more closely connected to Yahweh God. If you make that oath, you got to keep it. Did you swear upon the altar? No biggie. That one's not binding. Unless, of course, you swore upon the gift upon the altar. That's a rookie mistake if you did that one, because if you planned on breaking it, you can't. You have to hold that. Everybody knows you can't break an oath if you swear upon the gift of the altar. Get the idea here? This is the way that they rationalized and they justified their sin so that they could still appear righteous before the people when the reality was, how did they appear before God? Not righteous, completely unrighteous, because that's what they were. They pretended like they were obedient keepers of God's law. But as Jesus said back in verse three, they do not practice what they preach for they are hypocrites. Then Jesus gives us numerous examples of this. They made a big show of outward obedience. They did all the flashy stuff, like tithing, saying long prayers. But when it came to the weightier matters of the law, which Jesus describes in verse 23, which was things like justice, mercy, and faithfulness, how did they respond to those laws? They completely ignored them. And why? Because they did not love the Lord their God with their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, their strength. And they definitely did not love their neighbor as themselves. And this manifested in injustice, in harshness, with no mercy, and unfaithfulness. 
They were cruel. They were greedy. They were entirely selfish. And yet, especially as religious leaders, they were supposed to be selfless. And so in response to God's mandates or God's laws, we could say they were not only guilty of anarchy and rebellion against the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but they were downright hypocrites who were just play acting, acting like they were doing what was right. When on the inside, as Jesus, we saw last week, he said, you are just a bunch of dead man's bones, right? You're a dirty cup that is filthy. It's clean on the outside. It looks great, but you come up and look into it and it's full of all kind of muck and nastiness. Think about this with me for a second. There you are in 1977, New York City. Suddenly you're transported back there and your pastor, your deacon, your Sunday school teacher, that great theologian that has influenced you in your life in such a great way is over there smashing windows of the convenience store, beating cops, looting whatever they want. And you walk up to them and you say, hey, you know, I don't have a doctorate in theology, buddy, but I'm pretty sure that's sin. And they look you in the eye and they call you the sinner. They say, how dare you question God's anointed? How dare you challenge my righteousness, right? This is the idea of exactly what the religious leaders were doing here. And yet here's the thing, with the scribes and the Pharisees, this stuff is pretty easy to see for us, right? We're looking at a totally different culture, okay? We don't engage in these cultural things in the exact same way as they did. We don't have a temple that we're swearing upon, you know, the gifts of the altar and all this kind of stuff. But make no mistake, We do the exact same kind of things. And sadly, this often even happens for Christians within the church. How so? Well, let's think. They were liars, right? The Pharisees lied. The scribes lied. They lied to themselves and others. Well, do we do that? Of course we do. Not only do we tell one lie, but then we have to tell another and another and another lie to cover it. And why is that? Well, I like how one theologian in one commentary read, he said this, lies are weaklings. They need bodyguards. Well, that's absolutely true. But the problem is all the little bodyguards that come in are just as weak as the other lie and they're puny and they fall down so fast when even just an ounce of truth is shed upon it. And so we instead continue doubling down, bringing in more bodyguards, which are lies, only to set up a big fall for us. Oftentimes the way this happens is we justify the lie because we rationalize it away. We think, you know, the truth is going to cause way more harm. You know, I can't, I can't say that because look what will happen. The ends justify the means is what we're telling ourselves. Or what we'll often do is we self-protect. We don't, we don't want to damage the relationship or even our reputation with the person that we lied to. And so we go on to rationalize and justify our behavior just as the religious leaders did. We begin to trick ourselves into thinking that our lie is actually not really a lie. It's actually loving. It's good. It's helping things. That's actually good for people, which is another lie that we've told ourselves. And by now we have even ourselves deceived by all the lies that we've told. Self-deception is nasty business. It absolutely is nasty business. Think about this. Gossip is rationalized away as just giving information or the very common, you just need to pray for this, right? Slander is rationalized away because, you know, I'm pretty sure it's true. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd bet to say that this is true of this person. When we, were, we don't actually know. We don't know. We're assuming. Angry outbursts are justified because, you know what? You made me so mad, buddy. With our kids, it's like, if you just clean up your room, I wouldn't get so angry at you. With our spouse, if you would just do this, I wouldn't be so upset. 
Anybody ever said any of that before? Everybody put up two hands, how about, right? We're all guilty of this stuff. We all do this. We are all guilty of breaking God's laws while claiming to be obeying them. And we get around that through this rationalization process, this justifying process, where the ends justify the means, and the ends do not justify the means. The truth is, no matter what we tell ourselves, when we do this, we are like the religious leaders who are actively engaged in anarchy and rebellion against the Lord of hosts. And our response to God's mandates shows this in us. It shows the rebellion in our hearts. It doesn't cause it. It reveals it. Just like a citywide blackout revealed the tendencies of these normal everyday citizens. Another thing besides God, God's mandates that proves this is a response to God's messengers, which leads us to our second point. The enemies of the kingdom reveal their dark hearts by opposing God's mandates, or we could say his laws, but secondly, by opposing his messengers. In verses 29 through 36, Jesus is making a really simple point here. It's really straightforward, okay? It's not hard to figure out. What he's saying is this. People who hate God hate his messengers, and they oppose them. That's really, that's really all the point is here. It's, it's straightforward. Okay, so what, the way this works is that if you're angry at a king, a very powerful king who's off in his castle with walls surrounded, and you're upset with him, and you can't get to him, what are you going to do? You're going to go after his servants. You're going to go after his messengers, right? Like, and if you can't get after his messengers, this is what's silly in our day and age. What do we do? We, we start taking statues down. we like, I can't get them, so I'm going to defame their statue, break it, crash it, crush it. And it's because of the anger we have against the king. And this is exactly what we find from Genesis through Revelation over and over and over, and even throughout all of church history. Does the Inquisition ring any bells here? Right? Religious people claiming to do righteous deeds for God when the reality was they were flat out opposing God and killing his messengers. Many times that's exactly what they were doing. So let me ask you a question here. Who was the first martyr in all of human history? You can answer this one if you know it. I can't hear the whispers. (laughs) Abel, exactly right. Righteous Abel, who was killed by his unrighteous brother Cain. Why did Cain kill Abel? He was jealous. He was offended that God accepted his brother and rejected him. And so because he couldn't lash out against an all-powerful God, what did he do? He took the next best thing, an image bearer, his brother, who's made in the image of God, and went after him. This is how this works. All right, who was Zechariah? Okay, this one don't answer because I'm not even totally sure, okay? Commentators are a little confused on which Zechariah this is. This isn't John the Baptist's dad, okay? His name was Zechariah, right? Pretty sure it was. But there's lots of Zechariahs is the point, okay? So there's some debate here. But the point is, either way, whoever he is, he was clearly one of God's righteous messengers who was martyred for it. Most people, and I think this is probably right, think this was the prophet Zechariah from 2 Chronicles 2.24. And you can write that down and read the account of what happens there. But he was slain in a very rebellious, awful way. It was actually in the temple court. And this was extremely wicked because the way this worked back then was that if you went into the temple court and clung onto the corners of the altar, it was a way of claiming sanctuary from your enemies. And yet the people of his day were so angry, so violent, so evil that they disregarded that gesture and they took him out and killed him anyways. 
Jesus' point here, as seen in verse 30, is that the religious leaders of his day claimed that they would have never taken part in the shedding of blood of the prophets like their forefathers did. But there's no question, is there? They absolutely would have. They certainly would have. And why? Because not only did they oppose the prophet John the Baptist, which we've already seen, right? They they were not a fan of John the Baptist. They would go on to oppose God's prophets throughout the New Testament and the foundation of the church. But as they opposed them, they also opposed one of God's messengers, which was the worst opposition of them all, which was the one and only Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom just hours later they would nail to a cross and chant, crucify him, crucify him. They would say, give us Jesus Barabbas, not Jesus of Nazareth. You see how wicked that is? I mean, this was a murderer. Barabbas was a murderer. And Jesus was the Prince of Peace, the light of the world, who came into the world to save it from darkness and to set us free from the bondage that we were in. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus gave us that parable. And in that parable, it was the parable of the vineyard which was not only a prophetic parable telling about exactly what would happen, but it is what happened because what happened in Matthew 21 is not only did they attack the, the vineyard owner's servants, but they even killed his son, which they would certainly do with Jesus. And because of this greatest evil of them all, Jesus pronounces upon them a woe of ultimate woes, which was all of the righteous blood from Abel to Zechariah is upon their heads. They are guilty for it they will receive the same punishment. Sure, they weren't in that situation, but their heart, right, was no different. What did Jesus say back in his Sermon on the Mount about hating your brother? You're just as guilty for sin for that in God's eyes. And so make no mistake, if you're harboring hatred towards your brother, you are guilty of murder before God. And so from the blood of Abel to Zechariah, they are guilty for that, which is no light thing, as Jesus goes on to explain in a few verses later. And as we get into Matthew 24, we're going to see what all this entails, not just for their day with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, but for the day to come for those who oppose Christ. Now, so far, let me ask you this, have the religious leaders began to regularly and often pursue their violent attack upon God's messengers? Had they done that yet? No. They tried once, and what happened? Jesus just walked right by them. Their feet, I believe, was planted to the ground, right? They couldn't do nothing, okay? Because it wasn't Christ's time. It wasn't his appointed time by God's sovereign plan to die. So they're not there yet, but soon they will be. Just days later, they're going to kill Christ by nailing him to a cross. And then, as we see throughout the book of Acts, they start going after God's messengers. And when this happens, we see a total spiritual blackout that occurs. And there is violence, there is rebellion, there is anarchy on full display. Now, in the U.S., we've got laws, for now, that serve to protect our religious freedoms. And so it's not very common where you see a deacon or a pastor or a Sunday school teacher being drug out of, away from the pulpit out into the parking lot to be stoned, though that certainly does happen in some countries today. There's more martyrs happening today than at any point in human history, which is a little bit shocking for us as Americans, right? But it's a reality And this certainly could come almost overnight for us. But we are not yet there. So with that said, though, do we still find people coming into our churches, into our communities, and opposing God's people, opposing Christians? Do we find that? Absolutely we do. Absolutely we do. 
all the time. And in the Bible, there's a specific manifestation of this, and it's a word called divisiveness. All right? Let's just look at a few passages of what God says about this divisiveness. Romans 16, 17 through 18 says this. I appeal to you, brothers. Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. What do we do then about it? Avoid them. Verse 18, why? For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. This is the tactic these people will do to oppose God's messengers while they are actively claiming to be God's messengers, right? There's so many passages throughout the New Testament that says you got to be on guard. You look at the pastoral epistles. What is one of the main warnings that Paul gives young Timothy and Titus? Be ready, protect the flock, for wolves will come in in sheep's clothing and they will attempt to devour the sheep. So fend them off. Jude talked about this. Here's what he says in 17 through 19. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last times, are we in the last times, church? Yes, we are. In the last times, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. If you don't have the spirit of God, are you a child of God? No, you're not. You're not. For when, on the moment we trust in Christ for salvation, our spiritually darkened, rebellious hearts are regenerated to new birth, the Spirit of God fills us and equips us to finally love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to go on and love our imperfect neighbors as ourselves. That's what it looks like. Yes, we still do that imperfectly, but that's the pattern for Christians. Let's keep it looking at a couple more here. 2 Thessalonians 3.14. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that they may be ashamed. Titus 3.10-11. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning them once and then twice, have nothing more to do with them, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When it comes to divisiveness and imposing God's ordained messengers of the church, God doesn't just dislike it. He hates it so much so that he even calls it an abomination. That's what he says in Proverbs 6 here. He says there are six things that the Lord hates. Seven, yea, are, I'm getting some King James Version language that I memorized growing up. Yea, seven are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans feet that make haste to run to evil. And look at 19, a false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among the brethren. This is no small white lie sin, is it church? This is very serious stuff, extremely serious stuff. And when we engage, when people engage in this kind of behavior, make no mistake, as Jesus warns of right here in Matthew 23, that's what they're doing. They are rebelling against God himself. Now, what I'm about to tell you may seem like and sound like a little bit of a contradiction compared to what you usually hear me having to say about church leadership. But if you hang on with me for just a minute, I think you'll see it's really not. They do fit together. Has anyone here heard the expression? I mentioned it a few minutes ago. Don't touch God's anointed. Who's heard that expression? All the time, right? It's a common expression. So here's my question. Is it true? Or is it false? 
Well, the answer, of course, is yes. Okay, that's the answer. It's true and it's false. It depends, right? It depends on what we mean by anointed for one, and it depends on what we mean by opposition. Okay, so we got to clarify these things. Okay, so what is this? What are we talking about here? Okay, on one hand, has God sovereignly ordained the messengers of the church? Yes, absolutely. Read Ephesians 4. It talks about the gifts that Christ gave. You know, he, when he ascended on high and left captives captive, he gave gifts. The apostles, the pastor, preacher, teachers to the church is given. The, you know, the evangelists, these are gifts to the church, right? These are appointed positions by our sovereign God. However, as a pastor, my task is not to come in here and give you new prophetic information on high. I don't have a red phone in my office that I can pick up and be like, all right, God, give me the details, right? I don't have that. We're all priests before God. We all have access to God's throne room at an equal level, all right? But on the other hand, my task is, right? So I would be considered as a pastor, a leader within Christ's church, is to be filled with the spirit of God and lead his church as God has commanded in his word, right? That's the, that's the guidelines here. That's the, the boundaries from within true biblical leadership leads. I don't lead off my own preferences, my own desires. I am just merely an under shepherd to the great shepherd. And if I rebel against the great shepherd and start leading the sheep to a pasture, he told me not to lead them to, I'm not one of his shepherds, am I? I'm, a re- I'm, a re- I'm rebellious. I'm rebelling against him. So with that said, to oppose a faithful pastor as they do that then, you know, looking, taking this concept right out of Matthew 23, what is that then? It's to oppose God, right? That's, clearly that's what it is. And for the record, if we look at the Bible, what it says about this, that's really not something you want to do. For one, if you're not a child of God, because the wrath that's coming is huge. But even as a child of God, that can bring discipline upon your life. First Corinthians 11, the Lord's Supper. We're going to be taking part in the Lord's Supper next week. And we do it the first Sunday of the month. But what does it tell us to do in First Corinthians 11? Examine yourselves. See if there is sin in you. Because if you don't, that is why some of you are weak and sick and some have even died. God has taken them home. You could phrase it this way if you want, early. I think that's a fair way to put it. But God disciplines his children for this kind of behavior. This is why in Hebrews 13, 17, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That's a terrifying sentence for pastors. It should be. I have to give an account to Christ for the way that I shepherd your souls. So just a little side note, please pray for me. Let them do this with joy, right? Let them keep watch over your souls with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Okay, so what does that mean when he says, let them do this with joy, not with groaning? It's saying, don't be divisive. Don't cause friction over tertiary issues. Don't, don't be a pebble in the shoe, right? That's, that's what he's talking about here, really. Now, does this mean that pastors get infinite mulligans on the golf course? (laughs) No, they don't. Absolutely, they don't. That's not how this works. All right? Hence, why we, in last week in our Fellowship and Focus Hour, we spent the whole hour uh, talking about the pastoral qualifications for leadership and the deacon qualifications, all right? Because this is absolutely important to have in place. Not that we expect perfection, but pastors need to be known. Deacons need to be known, all right? These are two different offices. They need to be known for these qualifications or big problems are going to ensue. And so on one hand, biblical pastors, they will be opposed. Why? Because they're God's anointed messengers. Jesus says, if they hated you, don't be surprised. They hated me. That's why they hate you. But on the other hand, unbiblical pastors will be opposed and should be opposed. Why? 
because they are guilty of rebellion. They're the ones who are guilty of divisiveness and anarchy, just like the religious leaders were here in chapter 23. All right, so do you see the balance between this don't touch God's anointed, right? There's, it's, it's yes and no. Now, here's the thing. If you're going to stand faithfully for God, and this applies to everyone, whether or not you're a pastor or a deacon, a Sunday school teacher, missionary, whatever. If you're going to stand faithfully for God, it's not a matter of if you will be persecuted. It's a matter of when and how much. Okay, And I'm going to even argue that the degree to which you are persecuted is directly correlated with the degree of your faithfulness. See, if you're not faithful, if you're a Christian who's just sitting there on your hands, not really doing much, you know, not doing the, 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 the commands God calls us to, like, you're not much of a target, are you? No, you're not. Satan's perfectly happy to keep you where you're at on the sidelines. 2 Timothy 3.12 says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus will be persecuted. Okay, this is, this is a guarantee. And why? Well, thinking of the blackout situation we talked about a moment ago, because as John says, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. They love the spiritual blackout because it means they can run around and do whatever they want. They don't have to listen to any authority at all because they're the authority and they can rebel against God's laws without any repercussions. They love anarchy. They love rebellion. And any cop, any messenger of the law who shows up to warn them otherwise of their lawless activities, they're going to have a target on their back. Absolutely they are. In Matthew 10, Jesus tells his disciples that he's sending them out as sheep among wolves and to expect persecution. And in that passage, I would encourage you to write this down. Go back and read the entire chapter. If you want to see what persecution is going to look like, what the plan is, Okay, some of that applied directly to that mission he sent them on, but some of that certainly applies to saints of, of all the church age and even to the tribulation saints, all right? It definitely applies to all this. But the point is, following Christ brings risks. Following Christ brings trials. Following Christ brings persecution. And so very often, as with the scribes and the Pharisees, you will find people who claim to be serving God when the truth is they're opposing him. They're opposing him. If you confront people for their sin, are they going to want to always be your friend and say thank you afterwards? No, they're not. They might be very upset. If you stand for truth that is extremely unpopular in our culture, and there's a lot of that. There's a lot of Christian truth that they're like, oh, I'm cool with that, but there's a lot of it where you'll see veins start popping out and people very upset. They're not going to respect you. I don't care how uh, well-polished you present the truth, they're still going to hate it. Let's bring this into the church. If you serve God faithfully and exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, of the Spirit, as we've talked about in our Building Up One Another class, is Satan or Satan's messengers going to stand idly by and do nothing about it? No, you will put a target on your back. I'm going to borrow an old preacher quote that I got from Pastor Bob, and I'm not calling Pastor Bob old. He got the quote from an old preacher. I don't remember that guy's name, okay? So make sure you got that distinction there. Here's what he says. When God comes a blessing, the devil comes a messing. It's kind of a funny way to put it, but it's absolutely true. When God comes a blessing, the devil does come a messing, right? And make no mistake, I mean, a church that is being effective 
as messengers for God, will get a target on its back. Satan will send infiltrators. He will send those like the scribes, like the Pharisees, in to infiltrate and try to cause division. I mean, this is a normal, common warning we find all throughout the scriptures. And so what we have to do if we're going to be an effective church is recognize that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers of the unseen world. And if we don't treat it that way and recognize what's at stake, our mission, we'll be like the church of Ephesus. We absolutely will. Lori and Jacob, they told me they're about to head out to see all the, you know, the churches and stuff. But if you look at Ephesus, where's, F, where's the church of Ephesus today? It's candle stands put out, which is exactly what Jesus warned them of. He says, be careful or else your candle stand will be put out. And it's certainly that is exactly what inevitably happened. The truth is, when you try to get the lights back on in a spiritual blackout, people are not going to be happy about it because you're ending their anarchy parade. That's really what it is, right? And they are oftentimes going to get downright vicious. And I'm not just talking about the secular workplace. That's absolutely going to happen in our culture when we're dealing with unchristians, but it's often, sadly, even going to happen within our church. Wolves show up within the church in sheep's clothing. And when you see a wolf, not if, when you see a wolf who starts to munch on the other tasty, delicious sheep around them, and you go up and try to stop them, they're not going to be happy because you're taking their meal away. That's how this works. And they're probably then going to try to take a big chomp out of you. If you stay quiet, though, if you stand idly by and let them devour sheep after sheep, that wolf might stay happy with you, but you know who will not be happy with you? The shepherd, the good shepherd, who willingly lays down his life for the sheep. That's how much Christ loves his church. And so we must protect the church, protect one another at all costs. This is the gospel. It is only the message of hope is the only message of hope for humanity, which is the good shepherd willingly laid down his life for the sheep. That's our gospel message. And is the only message of hope for a humanity that is entrenched in deep darkness, in great spiritual blackout. And make no mistake, we too, apart from the grace of God, every single one of us in this room would gladly, in the right circumstances, murder all of God's messengers and more. And that's how dark our hearts are. See, we are, we are, you know, we're in a culture where it's not common to murder people who stand for God. But that's in our hearts. Apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, that's in my heart. That's in your heart. And so, we must in humility never forget this. And go forth then boldly to proclaim the gospel of grace to a world that violently opposes God. And so with this firmly lodged in our minds, we go forth and we bring this good news to all people, even when it results in opposition to us. The truth is, when people oppose God's message of salvation, they're not opposing us, but God. When we speak God's words with love and charity and they hate us for it, they don't hate us, really. They hate God. And ironically enough, they will often attack us and call us Pharisees. I've been thinking about this. If you look at a lot of the false teachers that are propped up within Christianity, if you come along and you start critiquing their lack of clear gospel presentation, like there's so many people who will present the gospel without the bad news. Hey, just add Jesus to your life. Like, he'll make it better. He'll be your life coach. That's what you need, you know? 
And if you come along and you say, hey, you know what? I don't think you're helping people. You're going to be called a Pharisee. You're going to be called a hypocrite. You're going to be called somebody who is touching God's anointed and ought not to. And yet the reality is the opposite is true. They're actually projecting upon you what they are doing themselves. For when they move contrary to the revealed word and what the mess, what our great shepherd has revealed to the under shepherds to do, they are in rebellion. The enemies of the kingdom reveal their dark hearts by opposing God's mandates, his messengers, and finally his message. In verse 37, it says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you were not willing. In these last verses, we find here our king of love with a broken heart over the people's outright rejection, the rebellious refusal to accept him as their Messiah. And in response to this sin, we find great sadness, great grief, and a longing to gather them together under his wings to protect them from danger. And yet, sadly, they completely refuse it. Well, what is this danger? It's the divine wrath of Almighty God, which they experienced and taste in 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem when it was destroyed by the Romans, as Jesus prophesies of here in Matthew 24, the first two verses. Uh, But this was only a taste of the coming wrath of God. For the wrath of God is not but an event, but a continual, eternal event that is upon all those who have rebelled and engaged in anarchy against him. And yet here we find the God of love, who is also that same God of wrath, showing us the perfect contrast between the two. And though for that generation it was much too late as they had filled up the cup of God's wrath, as Jesus speaks of in this passage, it was poured out upon them. But for us, praise God, it's not too late. It is definitely not too late for us. One day soon the blackout is going to end. Lights are going to come back on. And on that day, the terrible wrath of God will be poured out. For the same king of love, who is also, as we said, a king of wrath, now stands before us beckoning all to seek shelter under his wings from that coming wrath, which he will pour out upon all those who rebel against him. This is a wrath that is terrible, a wrath that is eternal, a wrath that is unsurvivable, as you will be in it forever. You will not get out of it, but by God's grace. Today, this wrath is avoidable. It is absolutely avoidable. And why? Not because of any good we have done, but because of the good Christ has done. It is because Christ died for us upon the tree so that we might live. And by grace, through faith in him, as we turn from our sin, we turn from our rebellious ways that we've all engaged out due to the blackout within our hearts and embrace him as our king and savior, we too can be saved. I'd like to close today by reading Psalm 2 which I believe perfectly encapsulates the heart and message we find in our passage this morning. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. 
I will tell of his decrees. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in his way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, but blessed are all who take refuge in him. May we on that day be found blessed when he appears, for we have turned for our, from our rebellion and submitted to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And may our hearts together be united in our longing for Christ Jesus to come quickly. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this passage, for this text. We thank you for the truth that's revealed in it for us that we desperately need, that shines a light upon the rebellion of our hearts. And so, Father, we just ask that you would reveal any wicked way in us. Help us to confess our sins to you, realizing that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And so, Father, I pray for the one here today who is a rebel, who is engaged in the blackout riots of spirituality against you, that they would recognize that their ways are foolish. Help them to hear the warning of Psalm 2, to be warned, O kings, to submit to the Son, lest they perish in his way. So, Father, we ask that they would seek shelter in the name of Jesus, who alone can shelter them from the wrath to come. Father, I pray for us as your people, that we would not engage in acts of rebellion against you in any way. Help us not to oppose you or your messengers. Help us to long to live for Christ. Help us not to shy back from serving you out of fear of persecution, but recognizing that persecution is part of the plan. For you have said, we will share in Christ's glory, provided we share in his sufferings. So help us not to cling to the things of this world, to realize that we cannot serve both God and money, for we will hate the one, love the one, and despise the other. So Father, help us by your grace to do these things. Keep us from the evil one. Protect us as your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.